Good morning. Good morning, Crossroads family. Um, I have some uh, bad news and I have some good news this morning. Uh, which do you want to hear first? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys. I usually like to get the bad news out of the way, right? Because I want to I wanna still have something to look forward to after I process the bad news. And here's the bad news. We have an enemy. We do. And he's real. And he is unrelenting in his attack. His mission is defined for us in the word of God. It's a mission to steal from us, to kill the life that is within us, and to destroy everything that God is seeking to build and accomplish within us. That's bad news, church. It's real bad news. And he's unrelenting in his mission. He's unrelenting in his attacks. He never gives up. Day and night, he's after us. Because he is the great enemy, the great accuser of the saints. He's the one who is trying to derail everything that God is seeking to accomplish and establish in our lives. That's bad news. That's bad news. Is it not? But I said I had, I had good news too. And here's the good news. Hope is alive. Hope is alive. Hope lives here, and hope can live here. Amen? And greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. That is the good news that God, despite the enemy being at work, God is not discouraged. God is not defeated. God is not overwhelmed. God is greater. God is stronger. God is a God who can defeat the enemy, has defeated the enemy, has put him in his place, and is seeking to help us understand that truth. Amen? Because when we understand that truth, we turn from discouragement and despair to hope. Amen? Amen. We're in Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. I, I would love for you to join me there if you have a Bible or you have the good old Bible app on your phone or you just know Nehemiah 5 by heart. Um, just join us in the book of Nehemiah. And we're journeying today because where we left off in, in Nehemiah is interesting. We, we, we saw in chapter 3, if you go back to chapter 3, that the work has begun on the wall. They are rebuilding the hope of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was to be a place where God's glory dwelt. Where God was worshipped, the God of heaven and earth was proclaimed to all the nations around them that hope was alive. And yet it had been burned down. It had been destroyed. And now through Nehemiah, God was restoring his glory. Restoring the testimony to a world, restoring the light of the hope of glory. And so the work had begun, a community of a bunch of random perfume makers, and if you remember chapter 3, right, random people that had no business being in construction like yours truly, right, had picked up a shovel, had picked up 
a tool and got to work because they had bought into the vision that Nehemiah was leading. We need to accomplish this so the city can be secure once again, so that we can be the city that God's called us to be, the testimony of a God who is undefeated. We need to have that testimony. So we need to rebuild this wall. So they had picked up their shovels. They had got to work. And yet in chapter 4, here comes discouragement. Here comes the attack. Here comes the enemy. I told you at the outset, it's bad news. He's unrelenting. And he's, his goal is to discourage God's people and God's work. To steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he comes in chapter 4 from the outside. From the enemies of Israel. From the surrounding community. And he comes against the men and women who were rebuilding the wall. But man, God shows up. And Nehemiah leads the people through saying, let's not give in to that discouragement. And there's a great victory. There's a great overcoming, if you will, that takes place in chapter 4. And the people continue the work of God. But chapter 5 comes. And even though the enemy wasn't able to accomplish his work, from the outside, he begins to attack from the inside, from inside the family itself, from inside the people themselves. When the enemy fails in his attacks from the outside, he then begins to attack from within. And one of his favorite weapons to use is selfishness. If he can get us to think only about ourselves and what we want, then he will win the victory before we realize that he's even at work. He uses our selfish nature against us. And he begins to attack the people of Israel. I know all too well attacks. And I know all too well the discouragement that can come when he begins to attack from within. Join me in Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to begin reading the first five verses. And we're going to see a problem that arises among the people. Let's read it together. There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields vineyards and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Let's pray this morning and ask God to open our hearts to his word. Heavenly Father God, I just know as we dive into this chapter of your, of your word, Nehemiah, God, that there are some in this room that are going to, God, feel the circumstances that the people felt in their own lives. In a different way, God, we're not building a wall today. But God, we're trying to build families and lives, and the enemy is trying to destroy that. 
God, there is discouragement sometimes all around us, but sometimes it's right within us and within our families. God, I ask that your spirit bring hope, bring comfort, bring principles into light that we can apply into our own lives and situations, God, so that we can not only have hope for ourselves, but we can be a testimony of hope to those around us. God, do your work in our hearts. Have our minds attentive to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What is the problem that's happened in their community? Number one, the poor without property were starving. Some of the Jews of that day, they, they, they had been, their property was taken away. They didn't have what was rightfully theirs, and so they were poor. And they didn't have all that they needed. And, and now there was a famine in the land and they were starving to death. Number two, those with property were in distress because of the famine. They couldn't even grow the grain that was necessary. They didn't have enough for themselves. And so they were also in distress. Number three, the people were going into debt to pay the high taxes that were being imposed on them. The king of Persia, he didn't care. He wanted his money. He didn't care of the plight of the people. It wasn't like the tax dollars of that day were distributed to local needs. No, they all went back to the king, and he built up a greater empire and palace for himself. And so the tax collectors were still among them, and they were still at work, and they were burdening the people. And here's Nehemiah trying to get these people to take time away from your business. Take time away from your family. Take time away from your fields everything that you normally do because God's glory is at stake. Pick up a shovel and get to work on this wall. But now there's discouragement because things aren't working, Nehemiah. Things aren't working, God. We're starving to death. We're having issues trying to even pay our bills. Number four, the rich among them were exploiting the situation by loaning money to their fellow Jews at high interest and taking land and their children for collateral. In order to get the money that they needed to live, the rich started to abuse their privilege of being able to help the people out with a loan. They started charging outrageous payday rate, um, loan shark rates. You guys have seen those payday loans? Whatever you do, do not take one of those. Come to the church, we'll help you out, okay? Do not go cash your check at one of those payday loan places. It's tyranny. It's abuse. That's what the rich were doing among the people of Israel. And they were even taking the children or the land away from people as collateral for the loan. And they were enslaving their fellow Israelites. Now we need to know a little bit about what the Bible had to say about this. So that we understand that there was already a guideline from God that they were in violation of. Let's go back to Leviticus real quick. There's a couple passages I want to read so that we're all familiar with what they should have been familiar with, God's law. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22, reads this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap all the way to the edge of your field, Or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreign resident. I am Yahweh, your God. 
What is the principle there? The principle is that there should have been provision for the poor among the fields of Israel. But because of the people's situation, they were like, we don't have enough for ourselves. We're just going to harvest everything we got. Now the poor are starving to death among them. It's against God's law. God says, you provide for the poor. You leave enough at the edges of your field so that the poor can come into your fields and pick the grain. The leftover, the little bit of grain so they can at least survive. That's my heart towards the poor. That's the heart of generosity. Follow my heart. That's what God's saying. The people weren't doing it. The people weren't obeying God in this area because they were panicking and they were thinking there's not enough. There's a famine. We don't have enough for ourselves. So we're not going to follow God's law. And so the least among them, the poor among them were starving to death. Leviticus chapter 25 tells us the other principle that's in play in this situation. Leviticus 25, starting at verse 35, reads this. If your brother becomes destitute and cannot sustain himself among you, you are to support him as a foreigner or temporary resident so that he can continue to live among you. Do not profit or take interest from him, but fear your God and let your brother live among you. You are not to lend him your silver with interest or sell him your food for profit. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother among you becomes destitute and sells himself to you, you must not force him to do slave labor. Let him stay with you as a hired hand or temporary resident. He may work for you until the year of Jubilee. In all the time that Israel was a nation, there's not one recorded time where they celebrated what God intended to establish for them, the year of Jubilee. God said, every 50 years, I want you to set everybody free. Anybody who's indebted is now freed of their debt. Wouldn't that be awesome, by the way, if we still had the year of Jubilee in America? Right? Every 50 years, no matter what your situation is, everything was reset. You were free from any debt. You returned to the land of your forefathers, and you were given all that property debt-free. That was God's will for his people. And yet they had not followed his will the entire time they were a nation, and because of that, they paid for it, and they paid for it in a big way. They were thrown into exile. They were subjected to foreign nations and their tyranny against them. God's heart was clear. Do not subject your fellow Israelite to slavery. Do not take advantage of them when they're in a desperate situation. And yet the people of Nehemiah's day, yeah, they were rebuilding the wall, but they still had a lot of problems inside. And now Satan was using it. Satan was using their hearts, their sinful nature, their habits that were hidden, that were kind of just, this is the way life is. He's now bringing those to light and bringing those to a head in their community. And he's doing it in an attempt to discourage them and to defeat their work on the wall. Back to Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6. Nehemiah responds, I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry 
and these complaints. This is a righteous indignation. This is a righteous anger that comes from a place of saying what the people are doing is just dead wrong. It's against God's will. And I'm just terribly upset about this. Because Nehemiah knew that this is going to really mess up the work. This is going to really put a halt to everything that he's seeking to accomplish for God. And he's discouraged by it. He's depressed by it. He's just disheartened. It stopped him in his tracks. I don't know if you've ever heard the kind of news that just stops you in your tracks. Life's just kind of going along, and all of a sudden you hear something that just devastates you. I've been there. I've been there. This is where Nehemiah was. He's devastated to hear the just disaster that the people have created for themselves because they have not followed God's will. In verse 7, it says this, After seriously considering the matter, that word there is like putting his head and his heart together. You know, his heart's devastated. His mind is thinking like, but they haven't done this and this and this. All the things that God's word says to do, they haven't done. And his heart is just devastated for the circumstance of the people that they find themselves in. He, he takes time. I believe that there was a period of time where Nehemiah didn't react. He's angry, but he does not sin in his anger. Let that be a principle that we follow. Because you know what? We're going to experience things that make us angry, and rightfully so. But let us not react in anger and do something that makes the situation worse. We all can be guilty of that, right? If we respond just purely out of the anger, instead of allowing God to put our head and our heart together, the heart that he wants us to have for people, with the things that we know to be right and true, we have to respond out of that place. That's what Nehemiah does. After seriously considering the matter, I accuse the nobles and the officials saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them. First thing that I want to point out here is there's a contrast. Leadership matters. Leadership matters. And there's a contrast in leadership that is presented here. Number one, selfish leaders always persecute people for personal profit. They will also always take advantage of people and their circumstances for their own gain. That's what selfish leaders do. They look at people as instruments for them to use for their own pleasure and their own kingdom. That's what selfish leadership is. But godly leadership, as exhibited here by Nehemiah, prioritizes people over progress. Do you realize that Nehemiah, he's got a mission to accomplish. He's trying to rebuild a wall. That's what, the, that's what he's been given permission by the king of Persia to go do. But he realizes, hey, we've got to put the shovels down right now. And we have to take some time to deal with the problem that's before us. Because this impacts people's lives. It's not about just continuing to build the wall and accomplishing something so that I can go back to the king and say, look at me and how effective I was at building a wall. Nope. He prioritizes the people and their need over the progress that he's hoping to make on the wall. 
Do you see it here? He calls an assembly together. In order to bring an assembly together, the work on the wall had to stop. He said, hold on here, we got to pause for a second. We need to take some time out. Let that be a lesson in leadership for each one of us. Prioritize people over any kind of progress that we think we need to make in our lives. Selfishness means putting myself at the center of everything, insisting on getting what I want when I want it. It means exploiting others so that I can be happy and taking advantage of them so I can have my own way. It is not only wanting my own way, but expecting everybody else around me to want it that way too. Why are selfish people so miserable? I think Thomas Merton said it best. To consider persons and events and situations only in the light of their effect on myself is to live on the doorstep of hell. Number two, what does selfish leadership versus godly leadership look like? Selfish leaders always cowardly comply with corrupt conduct. Cowardly comply with corrupt conduct. However, godly leaders confront conflict with courage. They confront the conflict with courage. Listen here in verse 7. I'll read it again. After seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, Each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, We have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners. But now you sell your own countrymen, and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and could not say a word. Then I said, What you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the approach of our foreign enemies? Should you not do what is right? Nehemiah is sticking his neck out here. He is challenging the powerful and the nobles and the rich among them. The influencers. He's standing up against them and saying, you're doing wrong. The nobles could have been saying that. They had been watching it. They had been being a part of it within that community. But they hadn't. They were acting as selfish leaders. They were cowardly complying with corrupt conduct. But Nehemiah says no more. No more. And he challenges them. He confronts the conflict with great courage. With great courage. Nehemiah 5.10, we read this. Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please let us stop charging this interest. Nehemiah had been leading by example. He had been giving them grain, free of charge, lending it out, just saying, hey, when you get a chance to someday repay, great. I'm going to give you even what it belongs to me because I see that you are in need. Nehemiah's like, why aren't you following my example? 
Why are you abusing your fellow countrymen? You're causing misery among the community, and it's defeating the work of God. Stop it. Knock it off. And he stands up to what is wrong. You know, there's many times in our lives and our situations that we get comfortable with, with just kind of living with what's wrong. Do we not? Just kind of, that's just the way it is. Who am I to say anything about it? That's not leadership, men and women of God. Leadership is to always confront with truth and love. Always. To not allow what's under your influence and your leadership to just go down a rotten path influenced by Satan's work unobstructed, unchallenged, undeterred. We have to stand up for truth and love. Amen? If we don't do it, who will? Nehemiah was a man after God's heart, and he was willing to be confronting the evil that was happening among the people with great courage. Let's jump to verse 14. I want to just read these verses here at the end of this chapter because it talks about what Nehemiah's example was. Listen to this. Verse 14, furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until his 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking food and wine from them, as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates as also oppressed the people. But I didn't do this because of the fear of the God. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of the wall. And all my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. There were 150 Jews and officials, as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every 10 days, but I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. There is an example of leadership. There is an example of generosity. There is an example of not taking advantage of the position that Nehemiah held. All of those things were rightfully his. And yet he didn't claim them as his own. He shared them with those in need. That's the kind of leader God wants. Do you really believe that the things that are in your life are yours for your purposes only? You're kind of like, well, I give my like, little gift to God every month to the church, and, and, and the rest is for me. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says everything belongs to God. That we are just stewards over everything he has given us. And yes, we are to, by faith, place a portion of that into his hands as a way to say, I trust you and you're number one in my life. We're to give our tithe and offering to God on a regular and consistent basis. But it goes beyond that. Everything he has given us is to be used for his glory for his purposes, to represent him in this community, to be generous people, to be known as men and women who care about others, the poor and the needy among us. Do we hoard for ourselves, or are we the type of people that share 
with those around us, meeting their needs. Let us be that. That's what Nehemiah was. Number three about selfish leaders. They incite and injure through injustice. They incite and injure through injustice. Man, incite the people. They were angry. Were they not? Were they crying out to God and to anyone who would listen? They were. There was injustice. And the people that were in charge of that community, the nobles, the the wealthy class, they weren't standing up for justice. They were inciting and injuring the people through their corrupt policies. But godly leadership inspires and influences through integrity. Nehemiah set an example of being a man of integrity among the people. He practiced what he preached. As leaders, we need to practice what we preach, do we not? Do as I say, not as I do, son. Does that work? No. Your kids can see right through that. That's a joke, right? We need to set the example and be men and women who are men and women of integrity. Finally, as we wrap up this morning, verse 11, return their fields. This is Nehemiah's appeal. Return their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil that you have been assessing them. He challenges them to set set what you have done wrong right. And when should you do that? You should do it immediately. You shouldn't wait. You shouldn't be like, well, I'm going to do it on my terms when I feel good about it. No. When you have done wrong, you are called by God to set it right immediately. That's the challenge here by Nehemiah, a man after God's heart, challenging those who have been complicit with corruption, complicit with evil, complicit with injuring others in the community. Verse 12, they responded, we will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. There's the response that God's looking for. There's the heart of repentance. There's the heart of confession before God. They've been challenged to do what's right, and they immediately respond. They have nothing to say in their defense because they know what they've been doing is wrong. And instead, they say, we will do what you just asked us to do, which is to do, set it right and do it immediately. Verse 12, I continue. So I summoned the priests and made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the fields of my, or folds of my robe and said, May God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. Literally, Nehemiah, it's kind of an old-fashioned thing, but he kind of like shook his robes. It goes, check this out. You guys backtrack on your promise to set it right. May you be shaken out by God. May everything you own be taken away from you. This is a serious thing. Nehemiah wants them to uphold their pledge to do what they said they're going to do. What's easier, guys? Saying you're going to do what's right or actually doing it? 
doing it. What does God care about? Your words or your actions? He cares that you're going to back up your words with real action. That's what he cares about. Verse 13, as we finish this morning. The whole assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. There was like a worship service that broke out. There was like a time of just celebration and praising God. Why? Because now the community was on the right track. Nehemiah, through his godly leadership, had brought them back to a place where they could now know that all of their starvation issues, the slavery they had been sold into, the abuse by the community was ending. They didn't have to worry about all that nonsense anymore. Now they could devote themselves to the work of the Lord. We need to get right, church. We need to get our household set straight because God has a great work for the church to do. He has a mission for us to accomplish, but it ain't going to happen when we got all kinds of problems in our own house that we are not dealing with the way he wants us to. Let us be the people that we're supposed to be. Number four, the fourth thing that selfish leaders do is they grandstand and they grab glory from God. But godly leaders graciously guide others to glorify God. They graciously guide others to glorify God. Let us be men and women who graciously, that's a key word there, right? Nehemiah didn't bring out the whips and start beating them, right? But Nehemiah did graciously, but with conviction, not cowardice, with courage, he led and he guided that moment so that they would respond the way God wanted them to respond. Amen? Amen. I have four questions to consider this morning as we close. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Number one, who has God called you to lead? You're like, oh man, Pastor Matt's talking about leadership this morning. He's talking about leadership. That doesn't apply to me. Really? You don't think each one of us in this room are a leader in some way or another? Let's define that. Who has God called you to lead? Who looks up to you? Who are you responsible for? Who has God given you influence with? All of those things give you leadership. Maybe you're in the home with your children. Maybe you're on the, in the workplace, you have leadership roles. Maybe in the church, you have leadership roles. Maybe in a PTA, you're a leader. I don't know where God has given you influence, but you do. You're a leader. Number two, where is your focus as you lead? Is it the people's best interest? Is it the glory of God that you're concerned with? Or is it your own personal happiness, your own image, your own convenience? Number three, in what ways have you led selfishly? Let's take some stock. All of us have a role of leadership somewhere in our lives. Where have we failed? We do fail, do we not? I've failed as a dad, as a husband, as a pastor. At every role God's given me, I've failed at one time or another. The journey is not to just throw up my hands and give up and say, well, I just, I'm a failure, so I can't move forward. No, it's to get on track. It's to make an assessment of areas where we've led selfishly and confess them to God. When the people were confronted with their sin and their selfishness, they agreed with Nehemiah. 
They agreed with the truth of what he was saying. That's what confession is. It's agreeing with God's truth. It's not fighting God's truth. It's agreeing with God's truth. That's what confession is. Yes, God, I've been sinful and selfish and asking for his forgiveness and his help to get back on the right track moving forward. Does God help us by forgiving our sins and by guiding us to be on the right track? He certainly does. And number four, how can you grow into the leader that God's called you to be? What's your next step? Maybe it's mentorship. That's for people who are asking the question, hey, I need help knowing what to do. Get a mentor. Find someone in this room that you look up to in an area of leadership and ask them, hey, would you meet with me? Would you meet with me? Would you spend a little time pouring into my life? Maybe you can read a book on that subject, a godly book. Whatever it might be, you need more information to be the leader God's called you to be. Number two, maybe it's accountability. I know what to do, but I just need help, encouragement, a loving reminder to keep it up. Again, find somebody that you trust to hold you accountable lovingly. Get into their life. Ask them to meet with you. We're not meant to journey alone. Number three, maybe you have no idea where to start. This is honest. It's real sometimes, right? We're just lost. We're messed up. Go to God first in prayer. You know, there's going to be men and women in the auditorium as we, as we sing these songs and we respond this morning. Let's be real. Let's go. Let's ask for prayer. God wants you to start talking to him today. Let's respond in worship this morning.